Okay, we're all set to get started. Thanks for joining tonight, everybody. Only announcement is this will be the last study for the year. We will be off next week, December 29th. We will return with the study once again as normally scheduled on January 5th. Hope everybody has a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year in the meantime. But uh, for tonight, we have one more lesson on Acts. So go ahead, Robert. All right, let's start by reading the last little bit of chapter five. Here we go. Now the high priest rose up and all those with him, that is the religious party of the Sadducees, and were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the prison, led them out and said, go and stand in the temple courts and proclaim to the people all the words of this life. When they heard this, they entered the temple courts at daybreak and began teaching. Now, when the high priest and those who were with him arrived, they summoned the Sanhedrin, that is, the whole high council of the Israelites, and sent to the jail to have the apostles brought before them. But the officers who came for them did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the jail locked securely and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the commander of the temple guard and the chief priests heard this report, they were greatly puzzled concerning it, wondering what this could be. But someone came and reported to them, Look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple courts and teaching the people. Then the commander of the temple guard went with the officers and brought the apostles without the use of force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than people. The God of our forefathers raised up Jesus, whom you seized and killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these events, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now when they heard this, they became furious and wanted to execute them. But a Pharisee, whose name was Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was respected by all the people, stood up in the council and ordered the men to be put outside for a short time. Then he said to the council, Men of Israel, pay close attention to what you are about to do to these men. For some time ago Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and about four hundred men joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and nothing came of it. After him, Judas the Galilean arose in the days of the census and incited people to follow him in revolt. He too was killed, and all who followed him were scattered. So in this case, I say to you, stay away from these men and leave them alone, because if this plan or this undertaking originates with people, it will come to nothing. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop them, or you may even be found fighting against God. He convinced them, and they summoned the apostles and had them beaten. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. So they left the council rejoicing, because they had been considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. And every day, both in the temple courts and from house to house, they did not stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus was the Christ. Acts 5, New English Translation. Okay, so there's the, the back half of chapter 5. Today, I feel like I've cried wolf too many times, but today is going to get a little bit edgy. Then again, I say that and no one believes me, but here we go. So let's let's set the scene. Um, today's text, it, it starts with the second arrest, right? We read about another arrest in chapter four. And now, um, you know, there's a second one because the apostles have violated the warning that they were given the first time. The high priest is mentioned. I'm going to just give a brief comment on that. You already know that uh, Caiaphas was technically the high priest, but it was Annas who was pulling the strings. Uh, Annas was the father-in-law. And uh, so Annas is probably the one leading the trial. Now, the Sadducees are also mentioned. Remember that this is the political slash religious party that denied life after death. Essentially, what I mean by that is an afterlife of some kind, and they also denied miraculous intervention by God. 
although they claim to believe in the Old Testament. Then um, they are, by they, I mean the high priest and the Sadducees, they're described as being filled with jealousy. And so they take action. That is really a strong word for a couple of different reasons. First of all, the exact word that is translated as jealousy is a strong word that normally in their culture conveyed the image of zeal motivated by a desire to maintain the purity of the faith, which there's such deep irony there, right? That it is the Sadducees who are acting all angry, like they're the ones, you know, keeping the purity of the faith. Uh, not not to get political, but like a modern example that might resonate is if assume that, a, that perhaps a Democrat gave this speech in Congress where they pretend to be the ones upholding the Constitution. And again, not to get political, but I, but I feel like that explains it well in modern terms. Um, and um, also the feeling of envy in general or jealousy is a very strong motivated feeling in that culture because remember that culture is based on honor. So in that honor is essentially limited. It's like a, it's almost like a zero sum game. If, if other people, people, particularly opponents, are being honored more than you are, then your honor is decreasing uh, and it it creates this jealousy. You must act or you're going to lose your place in society. Now, up to this point, the apostles' uh, peaceful behavior had protected them roughly, but now they have violated a warning. The authorities have no option but to act unless they are willing to just be essentially defamed and allow their honor to to go by the wayside. Um, I said this last time, but I'll briefly say it again. Uh, these arrests, they really do work as a redeeming arc for the story of Peter. Uh, Peter in the in the gospels, he he promised that he would be arrested and he would be willing to die with Jesus, but then he failed. In in the book of Acts in chapters four and five, he does not fail. Okay. What is, you know, so interesting about this chapter, right? If we had to pick one thing, it would be the fact that there is this miraculous prison break, right? The 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 angel of the Lord comes down and, and helps the apostles escape in a way that uh, clearly seems supernatural because we, we will discuss here in a minute, the guards are still guarding the, the doors. They don't realize that the apostles are gone. So clearly something unusual has happened. Now, uh, we should begin by noting that this miracle really works on two levels. On one level, it's another miracle that validates the apostles, right? The, the apostles really are representing God. On the narrative level, the prophecies about the coming of the Messiah and the coming of the kingdom, they explicitly include the release of captives. And so it really, it, it alludes to that fact that keeps coming up in Acts, like, the, the Messiah has come, the kingdom has come. It's a very present reality. And if you would like to know where that appears, go to Isaiah chapter 61. Uh, I also have it in the blog if you would like to read it from there. Now, um, throughout Acts, we are going to read about other miraculous escapes. I'm going to address here a, a kind of slight controversy that I don't know if if you guys will even care about this, but but I try to be careful. There are some scholars who claim that here Luke is borrowing from other writers, from pagan writers, particularly uh, Greek and Roman, because in their literature you do find some um, escapes from prison with the help of the gods. The story that would have been the most known at the time would be that of. Uh, Euripides, Euripides, I always mess up that word, Euripides. Um, and some scholars try to show that there's all of these parallels between the story that we read in Acts and that of Euripides. However, and I've posted a link, I'm not going to go through it in detail for the sake of time. If you go look at these parallels, in my opinion, they are incredibly weak. The two stories really are nothing alike. Now, Sometimes scholars will make the argument based on the fact that in Acts, we find two words in the Greek that also appear in the story of Euripides. Now, notice how weak that is. You look at all of the words used in both narratives, and two of the words 
match. So so they say, well, clearly then uh, Luke is borrowing this fantastical story uh, from Euripides. Um, but they really make a categorical mistake, like it's in an era of, of in category, I mean, um, or rather, as you say, an analytical mistake. Um, just because you're influenced as to how you tell a story, like, or what I'm saying is, even if I grant the premise, being influenced as to how you tell a story does not actually mean that you're influenced as to the substance of your story. Like imagine if I was telling you a story about my childhood and I started with the phrase, once upon a time, I was young, I lived in Chile, you know, that's where I'm from, and, and blah, blah, blah. Well, clearly I am borrowing a certain way of telling a story, but that by no means implies that I'm borrowing the content of the story. So I find that whole argument to really be weak. Um, now, later today, I'm going to get to an argument that is much stronger from scholars who criticize acts. That's going to be the edgy part of today. So hold for that. But at any rate, um, there you go on that. The most important question regarding the escape is why? Why does God release the apostles from prison? And the answer is right there in the text. It is for proclamation. It is for, for the apostles to continue sharing the message of Jesus and more specifically, they're told to do so at the temple. Now, this makes sense for several reasons, at least two reasons. At the temple, like I've described before, the apostles would find a large crowd that they could address. But this is also extremely reminiscent of the Old Testament prophets. When the Old Testament prophets are being told, go address all the people. Well, it, from a kind of a religious standpoint, political standpoint, where would you do that? Well, you would do that at the temple. Think, for example, of Jeremiah 7. I'm going to read some of this just, just to show that really there is a connection here. The Lord said to Jeremiah, stand in the gate of the Lord's temple and proclaim the message. Listen to the Lord's message, all you people of Judah who have passed through these gates to worship the Lord. The Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says, change the way you have been living and do what is right. If you do, I will allow you to continue to live in this land, right? It's, it's very similar. Go to the temple and preach the message. Repent and believe in Jesus and you will live. You know, you will have eternal life. Now, um, the message is described in, in, in an unusual way. I was going to say awkward, but that may sound overly critical. The, right, the apostles are tasked with preaching the words of this life. It's, out of context, that phrase might suggest words of wisdom. And in the Bible, when we speak of wisdom in that way, it means, you know, that certain behavior that leads to a better life. Like, don't get drunk and don't have multiple wives and, you know, that kind of wisdom. But in this case, given the, the context of the Gospels and what we have already read up to this point in Acts, the words of life probably are referring to the words of eternal life. So the apostles go to the temple and they start, you know, proclaiming the message. Again, th this is this is such a powerful image because this this conveys an idea of a reconsecration of the temple, which happened at the Maccabean rebellion. Actually, one of the most important Jewish holidays today is exactly about that, the reconsecration of the temple. Well, this, however, builds up the tension even more because the authorities have told the apostles now twice, stop doing this, right? And now the angel of the Lord has told them, do it, go do this, go preach the message, do it at the most important location, the location with the most people. And so the apostles at this point have no way of getting out of the dilemma, do I obey God? Do I obey people? And they've said it before. They say it again, they are going to obey God. So they go to the temple and preach, or I should say proclaim. Well, the some interesting kind of historical uh, notes here, so we can really imagine this. It says that the apostles start preaching at daybreak. Now, public life in the ancient world started at daybreak, and at the temple specifically, 
there would have been morning prayers going on and a morning sacrifice going on. So although it is very early in the morning, like, you know, in the modern world, if you if you went to preach somewhere at 6 a.m., there's going to be nobody there. That would not be the case at the temple. There would have already been a crowd. The other kind of detail uh, that is it's just kind of a little bit funny is that notice that someone, quote unquote someone, that's all we know, has to go tell the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, that the apostles are preaching at the temple, which implies what? That none of the leaders were at the temple for morning prayers or the morning sacrifice, right? Um, so it creates this very funny uh, and critical picture that shows that the apostles are more pious than, you know, these religious leaders that, mind you, are jealous for the faith. Well, um, then, you know, of course, when when the elite, they're told about what's going on, there's this big discovery. Uh, the guards are still at their post. They have not abandoned their post, which, which again, it, it hints to this miraculous escape. And it also hints to the fact that the guards did not participate in the escape, because if they had, they would have probably escaped as well. Um, you know, if the guards had done that, they probably would have received uh, capital punishment for, for something like that. Um, now, when, uh, you know, when the Sadducees find out about this, notice that they're not amazed uh, throughout the, the stories of miracles in Acts. Normally, that is their reaction. People are amazed. Well, the Sadducees are not amazed. They're just puzzled. They are confused. As I have highlighted in the past, the Sadducees don't seem to be willing to even entertain the possibility that a miracle has happened or that perhaps they're the ones in the wrong. Um, this is kind of a cheesy joke, but as the meme goes, they, they never stop to ask, are we the baddies? And um, they certainly are in the story. Well, um, and... To, to quote-unquote be fair to them from a political standpoint, it does make sense that they don't acknowledge the possibility of, of a miracle because, you know, even mentioning that idea might make the people support the apostles even more. So perhaps if the Sadducees did consider the possibility, it would make sense not to say it. Now, the leaders, upon this discovery, they immediately call for the arrest of the apostles and you, you know, you might imagine that the the leaders, particularly the high priest and the, the captain of the guard, must be quite embarrassed, right? When the Sanhedrin meets in the morning and the apostles have escaped, and not only that, they have done exactly what they were told not to do. So essentially, the high priest and captain of the guard have been openly defied. But... What happens? The guards do not arrest the apostles using violence. Why? Because, quote, they were, they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Now, given this, the history of Israel, the possibility of a violent reaction by the people is not implausible. Again, think back to the Maccabean rebellion that I discussed briefly last time. Um, that, that rebellion, I mean, long story short, um, the the Romans did, um, you know, something terrible in the temple, and finally the Maccabeans said, "No, nope, we're gonna we're gonna have a January 6th. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> it, it was actually quite bad. Um, well, so um, they they captured the the apostles not using violence, and. Um, Oh, and the other thing I was going to say is not only is the fear that that the crowds may attack the Sanhedrin, but if just the crowds get too rowdy, then the Romans might get involved. This had happened many times throughout their history. What, what this scene really shows is that the leaders are not acting based on what's right or what is wrong. They are just trying to get their way, what is advantageous to them. They want to save face, and they're only limited by power, right? The one thing that stopped them was, oh my goodness, this might be dangerous to us. Unlike them, the apostles, again and again, tried to do that which is right, even if, if it 
does not work out in their favor in the sense that they have to suffer for it. Well, we have another scene of an interrogation. By this point, this would be the, the third time the apostles are in this situation. Um, rather surprising to a reader, the interrogation does not begin with, how did you get out of jail? It starts uh, with questioning their di disobedience, saying, hey, why are you, are you, you know, disobeying us? Why are you still preaching this message we told you not to? Um, it, it shows you the priorities of the leaders, right? They're not interested in looking into this escape. Maybe, maybe God really is at work. No, they're trying to save face. Well, you know, what is the authority's problem with the apostles preaching? And we have discussed this already week after week, so I will, I will just say very briefly, the authorities claim that the apostles are bringing blood on them. Okay, that expression, what that means, blood guilt, it means one who carries guilt for shedding innocent blood. Okay, so that's what blood guilt means, or this, quote, blood on them idea. Now, what's really interesting about this concept is, is later in Acts, in chapter 20, so probably like five years from now, we're going to read that. And um, the apostles use this standard, quote unquote, against themselves. What they say, they actually say, if, well, this is Paul, I should say what Paul says is if I had failed to preach the gospel to you, then I would have blood guilt. I would be guilty of your blood because I did not essentially tell you about salvation. It is a very powerful concept and, and, and particularly powerful when it comes to Christians sharing the gospel. There really is a responsibility. Well, Peter's response is exactly what it has been in the past and what we have discussed in the past. Peter says, hey, we have to obey God over people. Uh, that's really the only correct choice in this matter. Now, um, I would say clearly the background to Peter's response is, is the Old Testament. Prophets had to make the same kind of choice. They had to antagonize Israel when telling them the truth. Um, but I think it's important to note that even to a more Hellenistic that is more affected by the Greek world, a more Hellenistic audience would have also understood this concept quite well because the story of the trial of Socrates was very well known at the time. And Socrates essentially says a, a very similar thing. He says, look, I, I'm going to obey, quote unquote, the God, little g, because he has a different conception of God than the Jews. But he says, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to be loyal to philosophy over what the authorities are telling me. So, again, this the, what, what Peter is saying would have been understood by Jew and Greek alike. Now, notice the language that Peter uses. He does not accuse the authorities of crucifying Jesus. He accuses them of hanging him on a tree. And I think this is a, a little detail that we should note. That phrase is, I think it's fair to say, is a Semitic, it's a Semitism or a Semitic pleonasm. It, it is an idea that appears in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy about, you know, hanging someone on a tree was a shameful form of execution and you had to take him down before the end of the day. Point being, this is a, a Semitic way of speaking. Uh, so it really was the, the more proper way to, to address a Semitic audience. I think that these are the kind of details that in my mind really lend credibility to, to the text, right? Because think about it. Like if I was writing a story about a Chinese man speaking to other Chinese people, like I wouldn't know what phrases are common in China, right? Um, so it again, I think it's a powerful little detail, but there you go. And then Peter's response to the council is completely unexpected. Somebody who was... Um, under trial, would not speak to the rulers in this way, being so bold, accusing the rulers, certainly not a person who was uneducated, as he was accused of being a chapter ago. Um, so, or perhaps he was in the same chapter. Either way, in, in the last couple of weeks, we read that phrase. So this really shows the fearlessness on the part of the apostles. They are different people 
from who they used to be at the end of the Gospels. And by the way, he, Peter says essentially, hey, I, there's a commission that I have to obey. And what would be that commission? That would go all the way back to Acts 1.8, where it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the farthest parts of the earth. They are to be witnesses. That is their mission. That is the one thing they must do and should not disobey. Now, this time around, unlike the last two times, they uh, they don't they, they they don't just get off with a warning. They're actually punished. Now, notice that the text says that the the rulers they wanted to execute them. Uh, but if you know if you were part of our study of John, you know that they did not actually have the power to do that either by an impromptu lynching or through like a formal execution, they had to get the approval of the Romans. The Sadducees were known to be quite violent and exceed their authority, but to be fair, we don't have any records of the Sanhedrin being involved in lynchings. Um, the Pharisees, we think, would have been more fair because they probably would not have supported capital punishment for somebody who was following the law. And by the law, I mean like the Old Testament law, and the apostles had not broken that law. They were not eating things that were unclean or desecrating the temple or something along those lines. Um, but after the conversation with Gamaliel, which we're going to discuss here in a second, I'm kind of leaving that for the end, uh, they decide to, uh, you know, to beat them. Now, most scholars think that what the text is referring to there is the 39 lashes. Um, this was a common punishment after someone had um, had not obeyed a warning. It was, uh, you know, the most severe punishment that was available to the council without breaking the Jewish law. Um, it certainly would not have been more severe than that because in Deuteronomy, there's a law preventing more than 40 lashes. So they would stop at 39 just to make sure they didn't break the law. Um, if, uh, the 30, Receiving 39 lashes would have been horrific. Um, that normally the person would have been tied to a post or would lie on the ground and they would receive one third of the lashes on the front and the other two thirds of the lashes on their back. Uh, so if that is what happened, the attitude of the apostles at the end of the chapter when they rejoice in, the, in their suffering is quite outstanding. Okay, now we get to uh, Gamaliel. And, and there's several things here that that we need to touch on. Uh, one is, it, I think it's important to know that Luke does not present the aristocracy as being monolithic. Luke is willing to admit, quote unquote, that there's a good guy in there. Now this guy, Gamaliel, was very well known. We don't just get this from Acts. Uh, you know, Paul mentions him and he appears in Josephus. And I believe in it, even in, oh yes, and in rabbinic writings. So Gamaliel really was a big deal. He was a Pharisee. Remember the Pharisees, they, they really loved the law and they even came up with additional laws to make sure that God's law in the Old Testament was not disobeyed. Um, they tend to be a little more merciful than the Sadducees. Um, G Gamaliel was, was very wealthy. Um, or, or we think so. He was again respected by all the people. You know, years later, he the 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 writings about him would, would speak of him as being you know a, a great great teacher. Well, Gamaliel orders the apostles to be put outside. There's probably two reasons for that. Of course, he wants some privacy in the council, but. There's a good there's a good chance that Gamaliel is also trying to de-escalate the situation because Peter is over here digging a deeper hole for himself. So perhaps Gamaliel thought, well, let's put him outside. Otherwise, this is just going to get worse. And the other kind of detail we need to be aware of is remember that the Pharisees, the guys who really liked the law, they actually were very popular with the people. So although they were a minority party within the council, because they had popular support, 
they sometimes could sway the council. They could sway the Sadducees. Well, Gamaliel, from, from how his speech is written, he seems um, quite eloquent. I write a little bit about that in the blog, but um, his main point is do not be hasty, right? Do not be hasty. Do not, do not uh, be overly aggressive towards these men, uh, what I'll call kind of the Jesus movement or the Jesus followers. And uh, here's the first edgy thing I'm going to say today, but I can explain myself. Gamaliel's argument is not a good one. Um, and now I am not claiming here that the Bible makes a mistake here. Um, it, what, I, what I'm saying is we have to keep in mind that not everything the Bible records is prescriptive. Right, Not everything that, that we hear about and read about in the Bible is something that we ought to be doing or that, or that is true. Sometimes it's just descriptive. It's like, this guy said this. And I think that that is the case with Gamaliel for a couple of reasons. First of all, Gamaliel, he um, was... Um, Sorry, I was reading one of the, the comments in the chat. I, I might come back to that later. But um, Gamaliel says, hey, this movement is like these other violent revolutions that we have seen, and they died off. Essentially, he, he's saying because they were not from God. So just, you know, let this Jesus movement be, because if it's not from God, it's going to die off. But why is this a bad argument? Because the reason those other revolutions failed is because they were met with violent opposition from the government. So it doesn't make any sense to say, well, because those other ones failed because of violent opposition from the government, don't violently oppose this revolution and it will also die out. Like if, it, if we're comparing apples and oranges here. But then... There is kind of a, a deeper logical problem here, which is this idea that a movement from God, and by movement I mean like a movement of people, like a sort of revolution from God cannot be stopped. Okay, let's grant that point, right? Because if, if God wants something to happen, it's going to happen. But notice that that does not imply that a revolution that cannot be stopped is from God, right? A implies B does not mean that B implies A. If we, if we want to get technical, right? A implies B means not B implies not A. But I, I won't go into that. Uh, but essentially, it's it's just a bad logical argument. And sometimes um, I think uh, Christians read this text and they go, well, you know, a movement that succeeds, it must be from God. And, and it's like, well, are you going to apply that standard to Islam? Are you going to apply that standard to Buddhism? Like, if you know, if you're going to apply that standard, um, I guess you've got to apply it consistently. My point is, the argument by Gamaliel is not actually a good one, and I don't think that it is prescriptive for Christians. I think it's just descriptive. It's just telling us what happened. Um, and again, that's such an important distinction that, that we understand that. Um. Gamaliel does not mince words. He ends his argument by saying, you know, you might be, quote unquote, or sorry, quote, fighting against God, close quote. This phrase appeared in a very popular text at the time, Second Maccabees, and it referred to pagans fighting against the Maccabean martyrs, essentially the national heroes. The Maccabeans are the Jews. Uh, so essentially Gamaliel is saying, hey, uh, you might be the baddies here. Well, um, the last important maybe thing to note is Gamaliel is 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 clearly not speaking from a Christian standpoint. This is a, a Jew against Jew conversation debate. But notice that the Sadducees were committed to the idea of no miracles. So the Sadducees could not grant that this escape from prison was something truly amazing and validating. Gamaliel, as a Pharisee, perhaps was thinking, hey, God seems to be acting through this, through this movement. We don't know that for a fact, but perhaps his speech is hinting at that. Okay, now I'm going to get into the edges part of today. And 
I, I will say if I start making anyone mad, just like hear me out to the end and then you can yell at me. Okay. Because really, I promise I'm going to kind of bring it together. Well, this, this passage we just read has one of the most kind of likely errors in the Bible. By likely, I mean, if somebody wants to argue that there's an error in the Bible, this is probably where they ought to go. Um, why? Because in Gamaliel's speech, he compares the Jesus movement to Judas the Galilean and Theodos. Well, Judas the Galilean, his revolt was in 6 AD. We are told that in the text itself. It says Judas led a revolt in the days of the census. That was in 6 AD. Okay, fair enough. No problems there. Theodos, however, he, from what we know, and I'm going to come back to how we know this. This is very, very important. Okay, so, so hang in there with me. Theodos, he led his revolt in 44 AD, which would be after what we are reading in Acts, right? Because Jesus was crucified in either 30 or 33 AD. And in what we're reading in Acts happens right after that. So it is still in the 30s, no matter how you date it. And, and Theodos' revolt was, in again, 10 years after that, give or take. So it seems like whenever Luke was recording Gamaliel's speech, he got it wrong. Um, and, and perhaps Gamaliel mentioned some other revolutionary, and Luke just made a mistake, or his sources made a mistake. Now, there are various solutions to this. Again, don't stone me just yet. Um, the first solution is that this 44 AD date for Theodos is incorrect. Where do we get that date from? We get it from Josephus, the Jewish historian that I have mentioned a zillion times in, in this Bible study. Because we know a lot of things because of, of Josephus. Well, it could be that Josephus got the date wrong, Um 44 a in 44 AD Josephus would have only been seven years old so it's not like Josephus was writing about something that was really contemporary to him at least not as an adult um Josephus was probably relying on um you know narratives from other people but if if you weigh acts versus Josephus purely from a historical standpoint like if you leave Theology aside, if you leave faith aside for just a second, um, Josephus mentions who the governor was at the time. He seems to imply that he has access to other historical records, and he writes a little more extensively. I say a little. He only writes a paragraph on this, on Theodos. I looked it up. Um, but essentially, if you put Acts versus Josephus, a historian would probably side with Josephus because he provides a few more details um, so if you apply normal historical uh, standards to this controversy. Um, now, the other possible solution is that this Theodos that uh, Luke is mentioning is a different guy who actually revolted before Jesus' birth. And that would make everything work out because notice in the text of Acts, uh, Judas... Um, Judas the Revolutionary, not Judas the Betrayer. He comes after Theodos, right? Uh, or at least there's actually some ambiguity in the Greek. That's not necessarily the case, but let's let's assume that for a second. Um, then this other Theodos would be a guy who came earlier before Jesus' birth. And and so actually this this controversy is not is not a problem at all. Well, um, it's true that prophetic figures abounded both before and after the birth of Jesus. So the fact that there could have been another Theodos is not implausible. However, Theodos is a rare name. So it'd be odd that we have no other record of it. Um, and, and I mean, and it's just odd that there would be two guys by that unusual name uh, that are revolutionaries. Now, perhaps Theodos was a nickname for names that were, in fact, very common, like Theodorus or Theodosius or Theodotus. Um, so that could be um, a potential uh, resolution to this. Now, most scholars, um, 
you know, if they're not committed to what's called biblical inerrancy, and I'm going to come back to that in a minute, um, they, they would say that there's a mistake here. Okay. So that's what most scholars not committed to inerrancy would say that Josephus was right. Luke was wrong. But now let me make two comments. Like, like I said, I said, please <laughs> hear me out till the end. And then, and then you guys can yell at me. There's, I, my first comment is about what I'm called the worst case scenario. Let's assume for a second, I'm not saying there is, I'm saying let's assume for a second that there is an error here, that Luke made an error, wrote down the wrong name or what have you. Well, does the Bible fall apart? Okay. That, and, and, and so let me, I guess, explain the idea of inerrancy rather quickly, and then I'll answer that question. Inerrancy is not always defined the same way. I, I say this briefly in, in the blog, but uh, for now, let's just define it generally to say that the Bible contains no mistakes. Again, that's not, the definition can vary, but let's go with that for a second. Well, if Luke got this thing wrong, then clearly inerrancy would be false. Does the Bible fall apart? Does the Christian faith fall apart? And the answer is a resounding no. Now, this is not to say that the doctrine of inerrancy is not important. Most Christians hold that doctrine very, very, very dearly. Um, but, but just because we hold something dearly does not mean that we have to commit it to be committed to a logical fallacy. Like all for the Christian faith to be true, the Bible simply has to be reliable, and reliability is a much lower standard than inerrancy. Okay, so that is so important to say. I feel like. So many Christians think like if the Bible has one mistake, they could throw out the baby with the bathwater. That is an illogical stance. Okay. Okay. But now a second comment is, do we know that Luke made a mistake? And really the answer is no. Um, these potential reconciliations or, or harmonizations with Josephus are plausible. Even if, if perhaps they're not the most likely scenario, if we just analyze it from a historical standpoint, they are plausible. Um, Luke, um, essentially over the, over the years, over the centuries, historians have decided that Luke is wrong on this, that or the other. And as time has gone on and we have had more archaeological discoveries, Luke has always been um, proven right. And the critics have been proven wrong. I don't know of a single example that went the other way. Um, so we have good reason to believe that Luke was a great historian. And of course, we may have theological reasons to believe that the Bible might be inerrant. That is a conversation for another day, so I'm not going to go into that part. So am I saying that there is an error here? No, I am not saying that. I am saying that just from a purely historical standpoint, that, that is possible. That is possible. Um, and... Um, uh, the, the, my last comment on this, and then I'll turn it over to you guys. I know I went a little long today. I'm sorry. Is be, I would be careful of people who are so zealous to, to, to present this controversy one way that they're unfair to it. Like I've read on websites that say Luke was referring to a different theodos. Well, we don't know that. That is a possibility, but we have no historical record of this other theodos. A website should not just say that they're, they're, making that up. I read in another website, well, Theodos was a common name. Well, it wasn't. So again, like I get it. You want to protect the Bible, but you shouldn't do it unfairly. You should not do it with lies. Um, in that you, of course, it's just a rhetorical person is, is what I'm referring to. Um, okay. With that, Matt, I will turn it over uh, to you. Sure. Thanks, Robert. As always, guys, if you want to participate in the discussion, just write the word question in the chat. I'll be happy to take you in the order in which you uh, present yourselves. Uh, just the word question will suffice as always. Uh, my question, I'm glad you talked about this killed on a tree language because when I heard the scripture playback, that immediately grabbed my interest because I thought that's, that doesn't sound right. I'm not the biblical expert here, but that's not the story that I've heard. And if I understand your explanation, it's that it was phrased in a way that the intended audience would understand what had happened to him. Yeah, because that, that phrasing is used in the Old Testament. Now, not for crucifixion, but by this time, it it meant that. Is there any reason to believe that the intent is otherwise? That actually the author there is intending to say, 
that he died by some other means or that that there is there's no evidence to that effect at all no no like this was a very common uh semitic expression to talk about crucifixion at this time okay in fact even was crucifixion conduct why the tree thing was it done on trees or is that just a weird translation or something so it's an expression it's an expression so it's like um, I'm trying to think of a good example in English. Like if I said something like, oh, he was too clever by half, right? Yeah, okay. Like the English expression doesn't like really literally make sense. But uh, <laughs> um, but like I said, it comes because in the Old Testament, it, that was a punishment that, that was spoken about. And then at the time of the Romans, when crucifixion came about, they just started using that to refer to crucifixion. But But there is no controversy there. Okay. Uh, VV, go ahead if you're ready. Um, yeah, not a question or anything related to the uh, study for today. Just asking for prayer and uh, consideration into the new year. And uh, Robert, Matt, thank you for these Bible studies, um, bringing me closer to God. Uh, I felt like I was veering away, and um, I appreciate all the gentlemen in the chat uh, actively participating and uh, building up a community under Christ. So uh, just keep me in your prayers for the coming year. Of course. That's it. Will do. And, and thanks for your participation in the study and for your kind words. I'm glad you found value in it and uh, hope the best for you and everybody else in the upcoming year. Uh, Robert, do you have any thoughts on that? No, I wrote it down. I will be praying for you, Vivi. Yeah. I'm so glad you're participating. And in the interest of community building, too, I realize this is kind of like a little nook of my online presence. You know, I, I it, it's this we're we're our own tiny little thing over here um, coming up in the new year. I probably should mention it a little bit more. You know, I, I, I don't mention it, mention this study as often as I could to try to get some more people into this community. And I think I probably should do that. And the new year is probably a good time to do it. But just my thoughts. Uh, VV, all the best to you, man. And thanks for uh, thanks for joining. And contributing. Uh, I think that's the only request to speak for now. So if you guys, if anyone else wants to join in, uh, just just write that word question. I'll bring you in. I am also interested in this concept of of a historical error or just an error in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, help me understand. Well, just help me understand the controversy here. I mean, I under, I, I get that the Bible is the word of God expressed through man, essentially. Um, but if we grant the premise that it is expressed through man, it had human authors, even -hmm. if they are expressing the word and the will of God, they are still men, men Mm -hmm. make mistakes. Even they might be accidentally misrepresenting a fact, misrepresenting God. What they're not even trying to be bad guys. It's just, we're, we're humans. We're capable of mistakes. So when, when I see something like this, that may, that could be an error in the biblical text, that to me does not, to me, it's, it's, it's no more damning than finding uh, a misspelling in a textbook or something. You know, it's like, okay, they misspelled this word. Does that mean that their historical account of World War II is incorrect or something like that? No, there's no other, there's no other, I, I suppose people would say, well, we expect perfection in the Bible because it's advertised as perfection. So if I can spot, <clears throat> excuse me. Aha, that one little thing. Well, that means it's not perfect and that calls into question everything. Is that really the gist of the controversy there? Or am I missing something? Honestly, you expressed it very well. Um, I'll so you first the first part of your comment, it is absolutely right that if a text has a mistake here or there, it doesn't make the text unreliable, right? Like in the the example you gave is a really great one. Um when it comes to to the Bible, there's controversies created for two reasons. One, um, it is uh, theological because it, in one of particularly in one of the letters, um, in, from Paul, we read that all Scripture is is God breathed and is and is good for uh, rebuking and, and correcting somebody and exhorting somebody and so forth, um, and and so. The, the the theological argument is that if all scripture is good, then that, that must mean that it contains no mistakes. 
Um, and then, so if you hold to that, that's called biblical inerrancy. And by the way, I'm not saying that I don't hold to biblical inerrancy. I'm sure that I'm making people super, super angry. I'm just trying to describe this just plainly and, and as fairly as I can. And maybe people can jump in if they disagree. But if you hold that essentially right from a deductive standpoint, not inductive, it's not like you reviewed all of the Bible and held no mistakes. No, like you, you, you say premise one, God said the Bible has no mistakes, right? <laughs> essentially, therefore, Bible has no mistakes. Well, if you find a mistake, then, then, like, essentially, what what the Bible says about itself is false, and and then you have a bigger issue. Now. Of course, that, that passage that people normally quote does not speak of inerrancy. Like it, it speaks of using the Bible for teaching and correcting, and that doesn't require perfect accuracy in all things, right? Like like you said, they could have a misspelling here, and they could have a wrong location there, and the Bible would still be a proper uh, moral guide and, and a proper record of of God's Word. Um, but that that is kind of coming at this from the theological standpoint then um like you like you said some people think that if there's any mistake at all then how can the bible be authoritative right because if there's a mistake here what about whatever passage i'm trying to use as, a, as authoritative right when i say well jesus is the son of god well maybe that is wrong too so the whole thing falls apart but like you said we would not use that standard for anything else. Like if, if I was reading a history book and the guy got a name wrong, I wouldn't throw out the whole book saying, well, then everything could be wrong. No, we're pretty good at detecting mistakes, uh, especially of that kind. Um, so that's where this gets really, really heated. In fact, um, I, in, I'm trying to phrase this without being like offensive, but, but, the way I even presented this today, the fact that I presented, well, there could be an error here. If I'm just like being, if I'm like taking myself out of the equation yeah. would probably get me thrown out of most. Yeah, I, it's interesting because I, I guess I can see why the concept of an error is highly controversial to, I suppose, both sides. Like to me, when I when I'm thinking of why it's controversial, I think of like the stereotypical fedora tipping atheist, like, aha, yes. I have, I found one checkmate. Um, but if I understand what you're saying, there's a, there's an equally strong, maybe more strong controversy on the other side, um, that is not aimed at defeating the Bible. It's, it's aimed at protecting that, uh, perfection. But again, like I could grant the premise of, of, of the word of God being perfect itself, but being imperfectly communicated by men or relayed through men, um, I don't know, but I, I guess I, I'm just trying to put my mind where the people who find a, a massive controversy here, where they, where they, where they're coming from. Cause that's just seems so strange to me really on both sides. Um, but all right, well, thanks for explaining it to me. Uh, anybody else looking to uh, raise a point for discussion this evening? Otherwise we have five minutes. I don't know if Robert, if there's anything you felt like you didn't get into enough or if you wanted to expand anything or just get to early Christmas. No, let me address real quick a couple of things that. Uh, well, Lag did just chime in. You want to go to Lag first? Sure. Okay, Lag. Let's let's uh, get your thoughts, and then we'll go to Robert. Hey, uh, yeah, I have a uh, comment. Probably uh, better first because it is they are both on a uh, topic. Uh, the comment is just. Uh, perhaps to help as far as understanding when it comes to the views on inerrancy. Um, the way that I have heard it described that is most succinct and helps me understand it well is the sense that uh, if this thing, if this is something that God is helping co-author, then he would want to protect it from error. And the question is for when we, uh, the different kinds of views on inerrancy is, what are the errors that he actually cares about protecting it from? Does he care about, is he like focused entirely on protecting it from theological error or is he including things like historical details in that as well? And so the question of, is this an error is related to, uh, to, to those, uh, those details. 
as and it's a lot like that does it matter as a historical error and then it gets to most e- even people with a pretty uh, strong view of uh inerrancy are pretty sure that spelling and uh, gram- uh grammatical mistakes are not to the kind of error that it's protected from especially because um as far as i can tell nobody on the planet before the typewriter cared about spelling because there wasn't consistent spelling mm-hmm. you kind of just sounded things out so there were spelling variants no not actual misspellings which there's lots of even in scripture so i hope that helps as far as understanding for uh views of inerrancy yeah um thanks for your thoughts yeah. on that yeah and as far as my uh question this is just as uh, a possible solution to the uh error that occurred to me and that is we know that luke is writing this long after you know both events long after theodos um and long after the the the, uh the conference he is discussing um the solution that occurred to me is one that i believe happened actually at a point way back in exodus the same kind of thing where it's a sort of intentional anachronism he the examples he lists of um um revolutionaries he is not naming the specific ones that were brought up then but the sort of the kind of person that he brought up in a sort of similar way that uh way back in that genesis and exodus when they are writing about things in egypt they use names for regions in egypt that probably were not used at the time they used the names people would know at the at the time the stuff was being uh written or even the time that people were more likely reading it i.e the names in the um of the regions in the old testament were changed as names in the re- for a while as names in the region changed in real life such that people knew what region was being talked about so like a place is called the uh ramses long before ramses was actually well discussing a time long before ramses was probably actually a pharaoh that sort of thing in this in this case it would just be he didn't know exactly who was mentioned so he mentions people in the same vein to get the same message across to the reader not necessarily caring about who if they were the ones actually mentioned would you consider that a uh, possible uh a, a possible fix or a reasonable one well, the thing is, it would be re- it would be strange if a revolutionary that came early on, like before Jesus was born, was l- was later referred to as Theodos. If that became sort of like a title for for that revolutionary, now it's not impossible. I, I think it would be a little odd, uh, but it, but it's certainly not impossible. In if if I can take the chance to um, say something that that. Uh, Reverend Rogers pointed out there on the chat that I have in the in my blog that I didn't say out loud, and I think it's important to say. Josephus makes plenty of mistakes in his writings, and in fact, he contradicts himself like outright several times. Okay, so Josephus did make mistakes. I I, I certainly don't want to make this appear like Josephus is just the greatest writer of all time, and so surely he's right and Luke is wrong. That is not the case. I'm just saying. With this particular controversy because because Josephus writes about it a little more at length and gives a few more details. If you apply traditional historical standards, you would consider the writing of Josephus to be slightly more reliable. Um, and the other thing I want to say, and this is not so much in response to lag, but just I want to get it out there. I am today, I am not opposing biblical inerrancy. Okay. I am I'm not taking a position on that. Um and I don't mean that in a critical way. I just mean that what what I've tried to do in this Bible study is kind of what what C.S. Lewis tries to do, like defend mere Christianity. And all I'm pointing out is you can have Christianity without inerrancy. It's true that most Christians believe in it, so it's a very important doctrine. Uh, but if if you wipe that that doctrine away, you still have Christianity. That's all. I, that's all I'm saying with that. I hope that that's clear, and I don't get you know stoned after this. All right. Thanks, Lag. Uh, Denby also has a request to comment, so we'll get Denby's thoughts. Yeah, just uh, about the um, Malleal. It's uh, it's quite an interesting thing, and it's um, I think quite quite noteworthy. And that is that um, 
uh, it points out that there are people who aren't Christians, but they are righteous. You know, they they're they're not. You know, they haven't you know received the gospel message, but they're. You know, but they do believe, you know, in, in following God, God's word and, you know, the God's, God's example. And so Kamaliel says to them, like, hey, if you take steps to, to stop them, that's you and not God. You know, because he said that, you know, there have been previous cases, cases where you know, people started some movement and it came to nothing because they weren't. Or they, you know, they weren't supported by God. It's like so. If you do something, then that's you taking your own steps and not waiting for God's judgment on them. And that's quite interesting. It's a um, it's a significant thing about the 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 Bible in general. Like um, you know, it's like with um, you know Jethro, uh, Moses' father-in-law. He's not a Jew, but uh, he he treats uh, God properly. You know, and he you know, he 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 also tells uh, Moses to deal properly with his own you know, with uh, with God. I thought, thought that's it's quite an interesting thing. Very very notable. All right. It's um, you know, it's just not every not everyone who uh, there there are people who aren't themselves followers, but they are righteous. They do uh, behave uh, in the right relationship to God. Yeah, Robert, you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I the, I'm glad he said that because you know I did kind of come out very strong and said Gamaliel was was wrong as in his argument is not a good one but but that is not to say that he's not acting as a righteous person and he he's advocating for caution and and at the end of the day he ends up protect protecting the apostles so it's very true that I mean non-believers can do good things it's absolutely true and overall what Gamaliel did was good um I just think that his argument is sometimes assumed to be true and be prescriptive. And I was trying to push back against that. Yeah. I, when I considered myself more of an agnostic person than I do now, um, when people would say things like, well, I don't even know if people would say it this way, but the concept would be like, you, you can't be a good person without God. I suppose that's kind of a crude way of phrasing their perspective. But I always thought, well, of course you can, you can, you don't have to, go to church. You don't have to believe in this. You can still be a good person. But the question is, according to what benchmark and by what standard? And even if you don't realize that you are upholding a certain concept of morality, when you make that judgment of what a good person is, you you still are. And eventually I, I realized like, well, when I say what a good person is, there's some objective image or concept of what a good person is that I'm judging that by. Where did that come from? How did I, how did I get that? Is it, did we all vote on that? Did I make it up in my head? Where did that come from? And so over time I've, I've really come to understand what that means. Like you can be a good person without God in the sense that you don't make God consciously or actively a part of your everyday life. But if, if you remove God, the concept of like the author of morality itself you really can't be a good person without that moral concept, that moral conscience, whether you realize you're upholding it or not. So it's taken me a long time to, to figure that out. But that, that question is a lot, is a lot of what explains my curiosity in this entire study. What is a good person? Where does it come from? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think sometimes people misunderstand like the philosophical argument when, when a philosopher says, you cannot be good without God. What they mean is without God, there is no standard for good and evil. Yes. So you can't be good in the sense of like, there is no good. So you can't be something that doesn't exist. That's, that's the key that I didn't understand before. Yeah. Like that, mm -hmm. that standard is absent. And, and where's that standard come from? Yeah. yeah. 
Okay. Well, uh, I suppose we'll call it there. I think everybody who wanted to speak got to speak. So yeah, it looks like we're good. Robert, I know I, I cut off your thoughts that you, maybe you wanted to express. So if you had more thoughts to, to say, go for it. But No, uh, I just hope everyone has a Merry Christmas. Um, you know, we celebrate the incarnation of our Lord, Jesus becoming, or God becoming man. And um, it, you know, if if for some of the guys that in the chat are saying they had been far from God, Hey, go to church. This is a, a great time to start. Anytime is a good time to start, but why not now? Well, thanks for uh, your participation this year, everybody. And thank you, Robert, for consistently putting together these studies for us. Uh, it's been great to renew the study in the fall here. And of course, we look forward to another great year, the study in 2024. But Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Hope to see everybody back here January 5th. Remember, we will be off next week, December 29th. And uh, after that, we'll be back on schedule every Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern time. As I will always remind you, if you'd like to find anything Bible study related, uh, you want to look at past lessons, listen back, uh, contact Robert, contact me, head on over to the Bible study page of my website. It's linked on the home page. Uh, and that's all I got. Uh, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. I'll see you next year. Merry Christmas.